Hello and welcome, Lance Quinn. Well, thank you, David. It's great to be with you. Oh, thank you, Lance. Thank you. It's good to be with you as well. Lance, tell us everything that we need to know about you in 60 seconds. <laughs> I don't think I can do that, but I'll try. I uh, <laughs> I was uh, raised in the state of Arkansas here in the United States. Um, I was not a Christian. Uh, my mother, in fact, was uh, Jehovah's Witness. Um, my parents were divorced when I was very young. I didn't know the Lord at all as I was growing up. And then when I was a freshman in college, someone gave me a Bible. I read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and I was converted to Christ through reading God's Word. So I continued to, to learn and grow, and I went to a theological seminary. I then went on staff and was the senior associate pastor and personal assistant to John MacArthur at Grace Community Church there in Los Angeles. I left there after 10 years of ministry. I pastored the Bible Church of Little Rock in Little Rock, Arkansas, my home state, for 15 years. And then I went back to Grace, served another four years uh, with John MacArthur in a ministry that he started called Grace Advance, which was designed to either uh, train men to start or revitalize local churches, young men, of course. And I did that. And then we started our own church uh, in Southern California. And after seven years, I was asked to become the executive vice president of the Expositor Seminary alongside my dear longtime friend, Jerry Ragg, here in South Florida. And it's obviously over 60 seconds, but I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> I am uh, enjoying the ministry and we're training men at the Expositors Seminary here in South Florida. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful. Well, when it's as good as that, don't worry about taking more than 60 seconds, Lance. It's great <laughs> to see how the Lord's using you. When did you first feel called into ministry? What, what happened next? When I was uh, originally converted to Christ in that uh, freshman year of college, which was the school year of 1978-79, I immediately knew my life was so irrevocably changed. I didn't know what would happen, but I realized I want to impact people for Christ like I have just been impacted for the rest of my life. And I didn't know anything because I wasn't raised in the church. As I said, my mother was a Jehovah's Witness. I I didn't know anything really about the Bible until I, until I started reading it. In fact, because she was Jehovah's Witness, I sort of knew less than the Bible because they had mangled uh, the right. true nature of the Bible. So because of that, I needed a lot of education, a lot of teaching, a lot of mentoring and discipling. And so I received that from a Christian ministry on campus for a couple of years. But it wasn't until someone handed me, at that time, of course, quite literally handed me a cassette tape of, a, of the preaching ministry of John MacArthur. And that's when I started listening to him by way of these little cassette tapes, uh, nothing uh, about the internet, the World Wide Web, anything of that nature at that time, of course. And so I listened to these little cassette tapes on my cassette tape player, and I listened to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of uh, sermons by John MacArthur. I was in Arkansas, of course. He was in California. That's a long way apart uh, from those two states. So I just 
thought maybe one day I could go out to Southern California and study and be a part of Grace Community Church. And the Lord allowed me to do that. And because of that, I went to theological seminary. I studied for ministry and thought the Lord would be calling me into full-time ministry. He did. And I have been in full-time ministry for just shy of 40 years now. Wow, really good stuff. As well as uh, a pastor and the work that you're doing at the seminar, you're also an author and you've written an excellent book titled God, the Preacher and the Apologist. Just introduce this to us, Lance. Well, that is a book that I've thought about writing for a long, long time. And that is because I believe in a kind of apologetic defense that speaks of God's word as the primary and even sufficient and supreme source for the defense of the faith. And I believe if we are to defend apologetics, that is the defense of the faith, that's what you could define it as being that word, then take the offensive, take the proactive, take the word of God and speak to people from God's word because it's our most powerful defense. It's it's our greatest weapon. It's the sword of the Spirit, according to Ephesians 6. So if that's true, then why don't we allow God to be his own apologist, as it were? Let yeah. God declare himself, which he has done in the pages of Holy Scripture. So that's my apologetic method. And then I began to think, David, that's really what we're saying as Christians to other Christians as we are conducting our local church services. That's what we really say about God. He's also the preacher of his own word because he's the declarer of divine truth through the revelation of Scripture. Then God is therefore both the preacher and apologist. So that's hence the title and I talk in the book essentially about what I think is the perfect symbiotic relationship between preaching and apologetics, because it takes God and his word as the source and subject. Yeah, yeah, great stuff. You may be introducing a couple of new terms to some listeners today. So let's just start at the beginning. What is apologetics and what are the various related terms such as classical apologetics, evidential apologetics, reformed apologetics, and presuppositional apologetics? Yeah, great question, because there's obviously different people within the body of Christ who would want to talk about defending the faith with different methods, different approaches. And as you enumerated there, there are classic apologetics, evidential, um, presuppositional, reformed, as you mentioned. So people can be quite confused. Uh, Christians can ask the question, well, why isn't every Christian, every pastor, every apologist defending the faith in the exact same way with the exact same methods? And the answer to that is, number one, apologetics is a varied field of inquiry. There's no way to be able to say there's only one method, one way, one approach, just as there's no one way, one approach to preaching, though I would be the champion of expository preaching, which I'm sure we'll get into, but there are even ways and means of 
preaching and doing apologetics. So why don't we look at all of them, try to decide which ones are maybe perhaps a better approach, a better method? I think that presuppositional apologetics, which is how I described it a moment ago, where you're using God's word as as that sufficient source, is the best method, though I'm not sure I like the word presuppositional apologetics, simply because it's not something that focuses on the pre of presuppositionalism. It's the idea that presuppositional is, is more a term that means that I am committed in some pre-commitments that the Bible is the best source to defend the faith, and apologetics then, I think, rightly defined, is to defend God and his existence and his ways and means by letting God speak for himself. And therefore, presuppositionalism is a way of saying that I let God defend himself by and through his word. The other approaches, Reformed apologetics, it's similar but very different in vast ways, though I think it's true to say all presuppositional apologists are probably Reformed in their theological orientation. They would not be Arminian as such. Therefore, it sounds similar, and maybe some people think it's the same, but it's really not. There are Reformed apologists who would actually be quite critical of presuppositional apologetics. They would be much more philosophical in their framework, their understanding of how to defend the existence of God, etc. I think with classical apologetics, a lot of Reformed brethren take that tact as well, but not all classical apologists are Reformed. And so you can't sort of put those two together. Evidential apologetics is wide and has many variations. And I think those approaches, while they have their place, don't, in my judgment, do the kind of work that I think is ultimate and best, because I think the inerrancy of Scripture, the inspiration of Scripture, the supremacy of Scripture, the superiority of Scripture gives us our best defense of who God is, how God works in the world, what is his plan, how are we to respond, and what does it mean for God to be his own speaker on these matters? We ought to let God do the talking. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned it a couple of times already. What is expository preaching? I think expository preaching at its heart is something like this, and this is not uh, germane to me and my own thoughts, and I didn't make this up. I've I've heard it with many voices, and I agree with it. Expository preaching is when you preach, the point of the pras- of the passage that you've selected should be, must be the point of the text. So if you are preaching expositorily, whether you're going verse by verse, uh, a kind of consecutive preaching that, uh, say, John MacArthur and others are very famous for, the point of your message, your sermon, must be the point of that text. And if you're going through a Bible book, 
each successive paragraph or each successive section or pericope is and should be the main thrust of what you're telling the congregation. If it's not, then it's not truly expository preaching. Now, you could also say that if someone does a topical message because they're wanting to deal with a certain doctrinal subject and they're not going in consecutive verse-by-verse sort of linear fashion, I think that's still very acceptable because you're wanting to teach someone doctrinally or a congregation doctrinally, and you have to go to uh, uh, texts all around the scripture, as long as you're in the context of that passage and you're not denying the context just to prove your point, then you're still expositing the text, but you're doing it from disparate places. Yeah, yeah. What is topical preaching, and does it ever have a place, Lutz? I do believe it has a place, because, as I just said, you can have a doctrinal sermon series, say, on the atonement of Christ. And when you do, you're going to different texts. You're not doing it, again, in that sort of consecutive verse-by-verse fashion, but you're still, quote-unquote, expositing. You're drawing out the meaning of the text about a topic, the atonement of Christ, but it's still expository in fashion because you are elucidating the point of that text in its context about the atonement of Christ. So I think it's useful. The problem is what so many people call expository preaching, it's topical in nature most of the time, and they often, when they go to those texts, misconstrue the context to prove what they're trying to say topically and i think that's dangerous yeah absolutely you're so right how important is prayer when it comes to expository preaching lads utterly significant if in fact you are asking for god's blessing his impact the meaning of the text and the illuminating power of your mind as the preacher understanding the text before you ever preach it, you must go to God in prayer and ask for his insight, his blessing, so that you can come to arrive at what you truly believe is the right understanding of that text, and that as you are preaching to the people, you are praying for even more illumination as you stand behind the sacred desk. And I think you're also praying for the illumination of open hearts of those to whom you're preaching. So prayer is bound up in the expository preaching of a pastor, the expository listening of the person who sits in that congregation and is listening, and even their further sanctification once they're at home and they're remembering what you've preached, and God is working in their heart through prayer to not only understand what they've heard in the preaching moment, but to apply it to their lives. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things we pray for as preachers is for God to illuminate his word, just like you've been saying. As we know, as believers, we have one Holy Spirit that indwells all born again believers. 
when we bear this in mind, how is it that two spirit-filled born-again believers can come to two different and sometimes opposite conclusions of a particular text? Well, that's a great question, David. Here's my first, and it might sound like a, you know, a bit of a smart aleck uh, answer. Um, there can't be two exactly opposite conclusions about that text. So therefore, one of you of the two is wrong. Yeah. Right. <laughs> we 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 uh, we wouldn't want to say perhaps that they're completely and utterly wrong, but if they do, these two brothers or sisters are coming to a completely opposite answer as to the right interpretation of that text. One of them can't be right as over against the other unless they actually are right. Right. Yeah. And we want to be humble about that, but both of them can't be right at the same time. So somebody is wrong, and I think the illumination of the Spirit, but also hermeneutics, the right interpretation of that passage, is absolutely crucial. And what I assume, David, is that the hermeneutical methods, the principles of deriving the right interpretation of said texts, is probably more the culprit there. I think there are people who say, I believe this text yields this interpretation, and they are at great lengths to make me believe that. But I believe that if they're wrong, it's probably so because I think hermeneutically there's something going on that they are erring in their understanding of. And I think it probably starts with hermeneutical principles before they ever arrive at the conclusion of their view of that text. And that's probably why one person is more right than the other, because their hermeneutics have served them well or better in the interpretation of that text. Yeah, yeah, really helpful. Thank you. We live in an age where we are blessed to have access to other expository preachers' sermons. You mentioned yourself, you've listened to hundreds of uh, Dr. MacArthur's. We have access to commentaries going back hundreds of years. As we pray for illumination, what should we do if we come to a, a unique and different conclusion on a text to anyone else in church history? <laughs> well, well, to be as sarcastic like I was a moment ago, um, I remember reading in a very, very good book by uh, Don Carson, D.A. Carson, the uh, New Testament uh, exegete over here in America. And Don Carson said in his book, Exegetical Fallacies, something I've never forgotten. He was talking about a certain interpreter, and that interpreter had come up with a view of James 2 about dead faith. And this particular interpreter, who himself was a seminary professor and had taught hundreds and hundreds of young students about hermeneutics and New Testament, and he believed that he'd come up with an interpretation of James 2 that said something like this, dead faith must imply that it was once alive, because something can't be dead if it wasn't once alive. So I believe, this interpreter said, that James is talking about someone who once had living faith, and now that faith has died. 
And that means that that person will be in heaven because this interpreter said, I believe in eternal security. I believe in the perseverance of the saints. And so therefore, just because his faith was dead at the moment of his death, he's still going to be in heaven because that faith was once alive. And I believe James 2 is a passage that teaches such a thing. And Don Carson said in his book, and I think wisely so, though a bit tongue-in-cheek, he said, now, this doesn't mean that that interpretation is wrong, but if in the history of the Christian church, no one has ever interpreted that passage that way, it doesn't mean it's wrong, it just means that it's probably wrong. Right, right. Because yeah. if nobody else has ever interpreted that passage in that way, that just simply, because of the illumination of men's minds through the ages, no one's ever thought of that. No one's ever concluded that. It just simply cannot be true. Yeah, yeah, really helpful. Thank you. Good stuff. It's been said many times before, when we preach, we first preach to ourselves. How important is that? I think that's that's the first step, David. I mean, it's it's a it's a wonderful thing for someone to be sitting in a in a congregation listening to a sermon and something very convicting is said to their heart and they say something like this I am so grateful that David is here in the congregation with me today he really needs to hear that message yeah right he really needs to respond to that i'm going to be praying that david would change as a result of what pastor just said well i'm sure david would say and 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 yes i think i probably should but what about yourself yeah i think we sometimes think of others far more often who need to hear the messages that we're hearing but the first person first and foremost always and forever is that i need to hear that message for myself and if I yeah. don't, and if I'm so other-centered by what they need to learn, how they need to grow, what they need to do to change, how they're convicted by messages, I've really missed the point of the message. I need to apply it to myself first and foremost before anybody else comes to my mind. So, Lord, teach me this truth. And if I am praying for my wife, my husband, my children, my friends, that they need to hear messages like this then apply it to yourself, work on seeing your own life changed by that word and by the spirit, and then begin to think and pray for others as they should do so also. I think that's a good way to go. Yeah, really good stuff. Lance, as as a pastor as well, obviously you're, you know, in in and walking alongside people and you get to know people's problems and what they're walking through in life. How do you prevent yourself from when you're up in a pulpit and as you're preparing your sermon to not use that as actually a, a place where you're actually then personally turning this in sermon into, you know, for one person because you know what they're going through in that time? Well, I think that's that's a double-edged sword. As a pastor, you are meeting with your people, at least I hope most pastors are. I hope they yeah. all are. You're yeah. meeting with the people. You're counseling your people. You're discipling your people. You're you're spending time with them. You're marrying them to each other. You're burying them. You, you are doing everything for the sake of these people 
whom you are, yes, also preaching to, but you're caring and you're loving them and you're shepherding them and you're discipling them and you're counseling them. If you're doing that, how can you not have them on your heart? And if someone is going through something so treacherously, so diabolically from the enemy that you and I have them on our heart as we preach, we don't usually use their names. We don't want to give, you know, all of the circumstances of that person and what they're going through. But you most certainly have them on your heart as you think about the word, as you think about them, and that you want to encourage them through that word. And their situation is a perfect illustration of what that passage is is teaching. I don't think you can not do that. But at the same time, I think you have to be very, very careful that you don't use the pulpit in a way that takes situations, trouble, issues, uh, two women like Euodia and Syntyche uh, fighting with each other. Paul can do it in Holy Scripture because he was inspired to write their names, and he was telling them that they must get along. But as the preacher in the 21st century, you can't call out Euodia and Syntyche in the message and say, now you two ladies, you, you have got to get together. You, you've got, you're in a fight. You're in a dispute. You can't do that. Um, Philippians, you know, chapter four says you, you've got to be, you know, not at odds with each other, but loving each other. That would be a misuse of the pulpit. What you have to do is you have to bring a beautiful blending, which is not always easy, of how can I keep my people in my heart while I'm not destroying them with illustrations about them. Even if I don't give their name, I have to be very careful. I have to take out names and situations and scenarios and make it as generic as possible, but I still have to have my own people on my heart. It's a challenge, but I think that's the beautiful blending of the what I call the the take-home point of every message. I have to have my people on my heart in one way or another. Yeah, yeah, thank you. We're told in scripture to be doers of the word, not hearers only. This means that our sermons are meant to be applied by its hearers. Tell us about that, Lance. Well, it is meant to be applied, not just applied, rightly preached, rightly exposited, hermeneutically safe and sound. But if someone is in the pulpit, David, and they are really nothing more than a talking head. They're um, someone who's just giving a verse-by-verse commentary of the meaning of the text, but it seems so detached from the living of those persons from week to week outside the Sunday services. And if you're giving them a running commentary, which sometimes men can do and believe and think that it's expository preaching because it's that consecutive verse-by-verse exposition, but they've never really taken that message and asked what I might call implicatory, an implicatory kind of preaching that asks questions of implication. So an implicatory implication 
throughout the text of that sermon is you saying, and you can say it with your own personality and your own approach, David, if it were something like this and I were your preacher, I might say something, not just at the end, of course, but through each of, say, for instance, outline points, if you have them. And I might say something like this, once I've exposited the text, I've declared its meaning, I might say something like this. And so let me ask you this morning, what about yourself? When the Apostle Paul says these things to those to whom he's writing, uh, the Colossian believers, what, what do you say about your life, your marriage, your children, your job, your relationship to your fellow believers in this local church? How do these things that Paul is declaring to his his readers, how are you going to see this through to change in your own life? Mm-hmm. So that kind of implication, but do it in an interrogatory way. I'm asking so that you're in a sense being forced. You're 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 being challenged to ask that same question of your situation. I don't I don't know everybody's situation. I don't know everybody's thoughts. I don't know everybody's job, everybody's life, everybody's marriage, everybody's family. There could be nine-year-olds and 90-year-olds in that congregation listening to you. So I've got age gaps. I've got gender gaps. I've got, uh, I've got uh, uh, the kinds of people who are all expecting me to touch them at their level. Well, that's, that's a Herculean task of epic yeah. proportions. So if I ask good implication questions, but I do it in an inter- interrogatory way, I think I'm able somehow and in some way to bring it to the level that at least they're going to say something like this. Yes, what would I say about this in my own life? Am I doing this? Am I falling short of this? And then, of course, in application, it's not wrong, but you don't necessarily have to do it every single time. Here are ways and means as we close or at the end of each subsequent point. Here are ways that you could consider changing, consider doing these things differently, confessing sin, asking for forgiveness, going to that brother or sister in Christ with whom you have issue. You know, even cross-referencing passages, Matthew 5, 23 and 24, uh, before you next worship by coming to the altar, as it were, uh, you go, and if you know your brother has something against you, you go to your brother, and and you seek to be reconciled to your brother. And if you are, then come and bring your, your offering, that is, bring yourself back to the altar as you worship, because you know you have a reconciled relationship. Forgiveness has been sought and granted. So those kinds of things, I think, are the ways to apply. And if sermons don't have something of that nature, I think, in my opinion, they, they somewhat fall short of, of touching and, and communicating and coming to a place where preacher and people are meeting each other in a symbiotic and spiritual relationship that says, I not only understand what the Bible says, but he's challenged me to change my life in light of it. Yeah, yeah. 
Excellent. Excellent. Thank you, Lance. We know and have discussed the importance of expository preaching. How important is it that we encourage our hearers to become expository listeners? And what advice do you have, uh, have for us um, becoming so? Brother, that is such a great question. I think there's a huge dearth of books, materials, teaching, conversation about what you and I could say is the need for expository listening as over against expository preaching. In fact, I'm, I was so concerned about this uh, when I first started preaching, um, maybe about 10 years in, I wrote a, an article actually on the, the Christians, the, the congregation member, the, the listener, the listener's responsibility to an expository message. I talked about even practical things like make sure you get to bed at a sufficient hour on Saturday night. If you know you worship on Sunday, the Lord's Day, uh, when when you are listening to the message, you are to do what you can to seek prayerfully to understand what the preacher is talking about. Uh, just to use those two examples, you know, get a good night's sleep and pray for, with, and about what you're hearing. Pray for the preacher as he's preaching. Pray for his clarity. If something's not clear to you, ask the Holy Spirit in the moment to make it clear to you. In other words, there is that symbiotic relationship between preacher and hearer, and the expository listener has the responsibility as much as the preacher. I mean, we sometimes, and you you might agree with this, we sometimes think we're so passive in the event that it's only one way. It's just that person needing to speak to me, to preach to me. I'm the passive listener. He's the active speaker. No, I think it's both. It's both and not either or. It's my activity proactively to listen, to have a ready mind, to ask God to use the preacher to make me a better Christian. Yeah. And this is not something we emphasize. That's the expository listening command, as it were. I must be attentive. I must be focused. I can't be thinking about what I'm going to eat later uh, for lunch. I can't, I can't be thinking about uh, what I'm going to do tomorrow about work issues, about children's matters. Now, if those things come up in a message and you're thinking about them because the pastor's challenging you, you're still active in your expository listening. So I think it's absolutely a vital subject, and not much, frankly, has been uh, been written about it. And I'm and I'm hoping that others have have and will write about these things because it's so incredibly crucial. Yeah, so true. Thank you, Lance. It's really helpful. One of the hopes and prayers of our preaching is that the Lord would use it to save souls, isn't it? In a metric-driven world, there are some that have taken that hope and then done all they can in the flesh to widen that narrow gate. We see this with emotionally-driven articles and the, the growing momentum within the seeker-sensitive movement. How do we demand a response and call sinners to repentance and faith without manipulating the response and helping create false converts, Lance? Oh, boy, another great question. 
David, I think it comes down to theology. It come, comes down to doctrine. It comes down to our understanding of what God himself is doing in the moment of conversion, true conversion. What is he doing in the preaching event? What is he doing in the witnessing opportunity? What is he doing in the apologetic encounter? And, of course, the Bible's answer, doctrinally, theologically, biblically speaking, is that it is God and God alone who opens the human heart to receive what is being spoken or preached or defended. It's God, the preacher, God, the apologist, who is opening the hardest heart uh, by the regenerating power of the Spirit through the preached word, through the defended word, uh, through the, the evangelistic uh, encounter. It's, it's God doing what only God can do. No wonder Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, you must be born from above. You know, that Greek word, anathen. I like the actual rendering born from above rather than being born again, because the born again nomenclature means that people think that it's something I choose to do. It's something I did. It's it's uh, God sort of laying it out there for me. And of course, there is a sense in which I must repent. I must place my faith in Christ. But the only way I can do so is if God causes me to be born from above. It's a spiritual work from the heavenlies. It's the Holy Spirit opening my heart to the truth of Holy Scripture, the, the, the Scripture preached, the Scripture defended apologetically, the, the Scripture evangelistically proclaimed. It's, it's a way, it's, it's a way of understanding theologically that God is about this business of initiating the divine relationship between himself yeah. and sinner. And if, and if that's not happening, I believe manipulation is what people do because they're not getting the results they expect. So you've got a large uh, you know, group of people in some quote-unquote crusade and so what does the preacher do if he doesn't see people being born from above? And by the way, you can't. You can't see that. The Holy Spirit is like the wind. He, he, right. You yeah. can't see what's happening, but you can see the rustling of the trees, right? But you can't see what the Holy Spirit is doing. He comes, he goes, he does what he does because he's God. So when you manipulate people by your words and by your action, stand up. Uh, sing, you know, 12 verses over and over and over again, the lilting music. Uh, now uh, your healing time has come. Um, this is a way uh, for you to become rich and savvy. And all of those things are manipulative. I believe they're demonic. I believe they are satanic in origin because you're saying, I don't get the results I want because I want people to see these hundreds, these thousands, these tens of thousands of people who are running and jumping and and uh, they're they're saying they're changed and they're healed and they're they're now rich and famous and da 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 da. I think that's manipulation. I don't think it's just on the charismatic level. I think it could be on the seeker level, as you mentioned. I think it can be various 
fancies and fads that come through the the church world and ultimately it comes down david to that's a kind of theology that suggests that it's up to me to produce something in them though god's involved god has to sort of uh, cooperate with us here and i think that kind of synergism for the doctrine of justification for the person becoming right with god is seriously flawed it is doctrinally in serious error and i believe that that kind of per pernicious doctrinal uh wavering from the truth creates false christians those people who presume they are but have no relationship to christ and it is no wonder that the vast majority of those people uh, ultimately and finally are seduced and deceived and are not Christians at all. And because of that, they come to a place of great sorrow. And they, so many of them, jettison those things, go back to either the way they were or even worse besides. And those are the kinds of things that are refuted by Scripture's own teaching that it is only God and God himself who takes the initiative. As you know, the famous phrase of the Reformed world, the only thing that we bring to salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. Yeah, that's so helpful, Lance. Thank you. So good. There are still many mysteries that are not clear and that in God's infinite wisdom, he's chosen to keep some of these to himself at this time. Why is it important that we don't speak where the Bible has not yet spoken? Well, to use, you know, my my book title, if I may, God, the preacher and apologist. It's this, David. He's spoken in his word. His word is final. His word is sufficient. His word is superior. And if interlopers try to come into the situation and proclaim another word, an additional word, an extra word, a, a word that apparently God himself didn't think of, didn't realize, and so we supplement, we, we bring these other words. And of course, I, I'm going to be criticized by others as soon as I say things like this because they're going to respond by saying no 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 we're not we're not saying that god is not speaking sufficiently we're not saying that god isn't speaking in totality but we are saying that god uses as a part of his arsenal his speaking personally and privately to me in my prayer closet or god has used his word yes but he also creates me as a prophet of his word well, again, if you believe that, try all of the arguments as you may. You are tacitly, if not actively, saying that God's word is not sufficient. It is not superior. You believe you have to help God along a bit to, to get the point across or to get the reactions you're looking for or to get what you want out of life. And you're actually saying God did not know what he was doing when he gave us his revelation, both in the stars and the sky and the nature of life that we know 
and through his special revelation, his natural revelation, his general revelation, and his special revelation, which is the 66 books of the Bible, 39 of the old, 27 of the new. This sufficient word is his declaratory word. His declarative word says, this is it. It is final. I have spoken. I've spoken in these last days in and through my son. And even in those days before that we would call the Old Testament canon, they are the preparatory word so that in the in the shining light of Christ's glory, he is, according to Hebrews um, 1, 1 to 4, the one who is now speaking, and he speaks through his word, the Holy Word, God's word. And when he does, there is no need for any other word. So why would we be looking for dreams and prophecies and all kinds of additional things which I think impinges on the doctrine of divine revelation, if if not, takes uh, a battle with it, a combat with it. Now, I know they're very, very astute theologians that you and I would, would love and appreciate who would say, I think you can have both modern-day prophecy and it doesn't impinge upon special revelation. In fact, there's a beautiful blending of the two, and I say, I don't see it. I don't see that. I don't see how those things coalesce in a way that Scripture is being honored in its totality, and that those passages that do talk about prophecy in both the old and the new, which I see as the same, not different, I don't see how those things can allow us to come to a place that says God is still nudging us with inner voices or inner mind um giving thoughts that allow someone to say i think the lord is speaking to me to tell you that you need to change jobs i think that's dangerous i think that's challenging to the new testament understanding and i think we ought to be very careful not to adopt such a position yeah so true so true And another thing we see today is we see people in the name of evangelism dropping God's word and instead leading with a prayer or healing ministry. Why is this a problem, Lance? You know, it goes back to exactly what we're talking about. Uh, This is is a kind of uh, supplement. It's It's a side version of what should be going on in the encounter. We don't need supplemental help. We don't need um, side jobs, people working with a, um, a kind of status that says if if God's word isn't sufficient in the evangelistic encounter, in the preaching event, in the apologetic defense, and we've got we've got to move in and through the the corners to to enlighten them, to to get them to think, more um, uh, sort of auditorily to hear something else than the proclaimed word, then we're just saying that the word is not enough. God the preacher, God the apologist, he's just not enough. So when I see them speaking in tongues, for example, which they say in the charismatic movement, by and large, the, the tongues of the believer 
is actually the authenticating mark mark of their salvation. It's conversion and tongues. They see them as together as the evidence thereof. I think that's not only wrong-headed, practically speaking, because not everybody does speak in tongues who who prays to receive Jesus Christ. The ones who do, they will never, ever be able to say in their minds with clarity and confidence that God's word sufficiently saved me. It was his powerful word. It was both his word and my speaking in tongues. And they'll say, oh, but he gave it to me. But he gave me the gift of tongues. So it was his gift. I'm just now manifesting his gift. And if you were to say that, I would say therein lies the confusion. Because if that's true, then why is it that people in these charismatic churches teach people how to speak in tongues? They actually say, say, uh, Yamaha, Shudabara Kawasaki. And 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 they they start talking in the gibberish. So, is it a gift that I've received from God? Can't He show me through His Word and by His Spirit how to do it? Why do I need someone to actually start saying ba 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 ba? Just let yourself go. Well, I just see terrible inconsistency there, and I also see that there's no teaching in the New Testament to make people who supposedly have the gift of tongues, there's no teaching about the practicality of having Christians do that. Christians are being told practically in the New Testament about everything else, about all things. Why isn't that there? It's silent. Therefore, I believe that silence is deafening. Yeah, absolutely. And with regards to the healing ministry, I mean, this is then assuming upon uh, God's will that it's always his will for everybody to be healthy and if you go up to a non-believing christian and you're sorry a non-believer and your your first contact is to tell them that god's going to make you know whatever it is that they've got wrong wrong with them better and yes. then god doesn't then they're never going to be- listen to another so-called christian word again are they Lance? it's just extremely dangerous isn't it it is because you're actually saying to that person i want you to believe and obey and live your christian life on the basis of these kinds of experiences. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Well, what if you don't have that experience? What if you had an experience that you thought was genuine and real at the outset, and then all of those experiences begin to dissipate and fall away? Are you saying, well, I guess I'm less a Christian than I should be? So what you do is you are on a journey now from experience to experience to experience, You're looking for it. You're clamoring for it. You may or may not get it. No wonder these people go to all kinds of crusades and meetings. They just go from from experience to experience, from from tent to tent, from door to door, because they're looking for the experience, because they are an experiential, uh, perceived, professing Christian. You know how we're being delicate when we say that? Professing, perceived, because as you said, what happens is when those things fade away and you got to go to work on Monday, when, when you when you have disobedient children, when you've got a wayward child, when you have uh, a marriage that's crumbling, are you just going to go to the next crusade and look for the next experience? No, you look to God's word. And so 
it takes them away from putting their eyeballs into the text of Scripture, and it moves them to an experiential Christianity that I think is ultimately deadly. Yeah, so true, so true. Lance, you dedicated this book to some wonderful men, two of those. Firstly, tell us about your relationship with John MacArthur and how has the Lord used him to impact your life? Well, as I said um, at the very beginning, and uh, thank you for my loquaciousness, um, I, I've i known John for 40 years now, this year. This year marks the 40th year, 1983. I met John first uh, at Grace Community Church. And uh, three years later, he asked me if I would become his personal assistant and to be the senior associate pastor of Grace Church. I was a very young man. He took a he took a shot. He took a, a risk at a, at a young man uh, to serve so closely with him in that role. And uh, I, I served him there for 10 years until I went off to pastor my own local church, as I said earlier. And the. Uh, 30 years hence, uh, we have worked. I, as I said, I wor worked with him again a second time uh, back at uh, Grace Community Church. Um, I just was with him not too long ago in a one-on-one -on -one, uh, time at his home. Uh, John is 84 years old now, and uh, he's still preaching uh, almost 54 years uh, of uh, preaching at Grace Community Church. Um He's he's uh, been a wonderful mentor and a father-like figure to me. I mentioned uh, that my parents were divorced. Um, I didn't grow up with a father, so he was he's one of those father figures in my life, and uh, I love him. I love his wife Patricia and their family, and and we have a an endearing and enduring friendship that I cherish, and so that's why he certainly had to be one of those that I dedicated the book to. Yeah. Another man that you mentioned is Pastor Jerry Rag, another wonderful preacher. Tell us about him, Lance. Jerry is uh, just sort of my best buddy. I mean, we we actually met uh, at Grace Community Church. We were both young, very close in age. And at a certain point, after some years of knowing him, and we'd meet together, we'd pray, we'd sort of disciple one another in, in the faith, nurtured each other. He would say I was his discipler. I would say he was my discipler in, in you know tangible ways. And when I left to go pastor my own local church uh, after those uh, 10 years with uh, John, I had, had asked Jerry to become my assistant as I was assisting John because of the workload. And Jerry agreed to that. John was amenable to that. And so when I left, Jerry became that assistant to John in the role that I had. And so right, because yeah. of that, we have crisscrossed. And then when my dear wife died of cancer three and a half years ago, uh, I spoke to my dear friend, Jerry. He was here as president of the Expositor Seminary and pastor of Grace Emanuel Bible Church in Jupiter, Florida, here in the U.S. And knowing that I was bereft of a dear wife after almost 34 years. And we had talked through all of those challenges of about seven years of difficulty of, of watching my dear wife die of this cancer, though she's gloriously with the Lord. And I can't 
be more thrilled that she's worshiping our Savior face-to-face in her spirit. And so Jerry and some other dear friends, the uh, academic dean of the Expositor Seminary, Dr. George Zimmick, who is now himself with the Lord, uh, died at age 80 uh, just last year, and Todd Murray, who is one of the associate pastors here, who was with me for 15 years in Little Rock as a music pastor, and he's now the the, uh, family ministries pastor here at this church. And so those three brothers sat me down, David, and they just said, we know what's happened with Beth. We love you. Why don't you come and work with us? Be the vice president of the seminary. Be on the pastoral team with with us here. We need you. We want you. We think we can be a great team together. And so I prayed about that for nine months. I spoke to my kids, my my elders in my church in California, and it just seemed to me to be the will of the Lord. So two years ago, I came, and so Jerry Rag, my my dear friend, Todd Murray, my dear friend, George Zimmick, my dear friend who's now with the Lord, we we ministered for that year together, George now in glory, and uh, I'm here with my two best friends in all the the world. And uh, it seems as though the Lord's kindness has splashed over me in my my hour of grief and sorrow with the loss of a spouse. Yeah. Wow. I don't know if it's because I'm an ignorant Brit and I can't tell the difference, but if I was to close my eyes and listen to you and Jerry speak, you've almost got identical <laughs> voices. Do you think that as well, Lance? Is that true? I I, I totally do. People say, you sound like Jerry Rag, and they say to him, you sound like Lance Quinn. And then <laughs> a lot of others say, and you know what? The two of you sound a lot like John MacArthur. And, uh, and I say, well, I guess that means um, that discipleship worked to some degree. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm glad it's not just me that thinks that. We're going to take a quick break before returning before we to let you go, Lance. Please take a moment to let us know your closing thoughts and also let people know how they can keep in touch with you on social media. Well, again, since I'm not real swift on social media, you know, <laughs> I'd, I'd love to say, follow me on, you know, do this. I have, I have a Twitter account. I, I, I have, you know, a Facebook account. I, I do all of that, but the best way to get a hold of Lance Quinn is to uh, sort of contact me through the Expositors Seminary website, uh, which is expositors.org. And the GIBC, which stands for Grace Emmanuel, Emmanuel with an I, Grace Emmanuel Bible Church, uh, which, of course, GIBC.org. Uh, there's some other, you know, there's a, a Courageous Churchman website, uh, churchman.org. Uh, there are ways and means, but the church website and the seminary website are ways that people can sort of get a hold of me. Or, of course, they can call the office or they can email me. Um, my email, uh, is lquinn at expositors.org and someone can email me perhaps if they want or, uh, Lance Q at GIBC Jupiter, which is the name of the city, GIBC Jupiter.org. And, uh, that can, that can get people past the firewall of some kind of a website and some kind of a generic email. And you can just email directly. And um, yeah. 
I probably shouldn't give out my uh, my cell phone and people probably no. wouldn't anyway, but that's a way that people can get in touch with me if they want. And uh, yeah. thank you, brother. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for the way you do it. Thank you for your, your faithfulness and for Exposit the Word, the podcast, your excellent questions. And I pray that this ministry would not only go forward, but it would be blessed of the Lord and make a, a very definite impact on those who listen in and follow carefully. Yeah, I really appreciate that, Lance. Thank you. Really enjoyed speaking with you as well. I'm going to go and find your Twitter handle and your Facebook. And I'm going to make sure they're in the description below to make it easy for people to, to follow you. Lance, thanks again for your time. Make sure that you reach out once a new book comes out and we can definitely do this again if you've got All the right. time. Thank you, brother. Appreciate it.